So Charles, before we begin today, I'd like to briefly explain a little sweepstakes opportunity for our listeners. So in preparation for a Patreon bonus episode, uh, that's right, we have Patreon bonus episodes. If you're not familiar, go check us out at patreon.com slash Northern Overexposure Podcast. Well, preparing for one of those episodes, we ordered the Northern Exposure Cookbook. That's right. Northern Exposure has a cookbook, a officially sanctioned cookbook for all the recipes that have appeared throughout the series right there. So, for example, we have recipes like the famous moose burger, Adam's Lamb Stew, or the Bricks Kick-Ass Chili. And all of them have a lead-up and a quotation that fits the recipe. So, for example, for the Bricks Kick-Ass Chili, which premiered in Dateline, Sicily, it says... In return for Chris's loaning him some much-needed money, Hauling makes Chris a partner in the brick. Unfortunately, this causes the normally philosophical DJ to start obsessing about things like coasters and the bottom line. Chris says, All I'm saying is that Leon's Roadhouse in Sweetwater charges $3.50 for a bowl of chili half this size, and theirs comes out of a can. Yeah, I was just expecting like sort of a corny thrown-together cookbook, but... Every recipe really does have its place in the show, even if it's just like a throwaway line. It's kind of cool how they reconnect it back and how it's so well cataloged. Um, But here's the deal. So when we ordered the cookbook, there was like that whole freeze that happened in the United States. So it was lost in the mail. I ordered a second one and then, you know, it finally came in. And then a couple days after that, the original one came in. So I have two of these cookbooks. We don't need this extra one. So we'd like to give it away to one of our listeners. And here's how the sweepstakes will work. If you go onto our Facebook page or our Twitter page, you'll find a post from February 28th, Sunday night, where you can retweet if you're on Twitter or share if you're on Facebook that post with how you would describe Northern Exposure to someone who has never seen it. It's kind of like the concept of this podcast, but take that post, retweet it, share it, Uh, with sort of your pitch for the show. That's right. We're going to take one random retweeter or reposter on Facebook, and we're going to mail you the extra cookbook. So go find that post and retweet or share, and you can get this cookbook mailed to you for free. Well, Charles, are you ready to start the show? Yeah, let's start it. I hate to be intrusive, but what are you doing? Cleaning. Yeah, I mean, why aren't you at the office? The co-host. The what? The, what? What does the wind have to do with it? It's bad. The wind is bad. Is that what you're saying? The wind is bad? Is this an Indian thing going on or something? Look, Marilyn, this is a superstition, okay? The wind cannot be good or bad. It blows hot. It blows cold. It has no moral or ethical component. You know, Lee, I actually really like wind as a symbolism device. Interesting. What uh, what do you think wind symbolizes in literature, film, TV? Yeah, the thing about it is that, in my opinion, I don't think there's a straightforward interpretation of what wind means in symbolism. A lot of times people say that it means um, like foreshadowing of a stormy or tumultuous time like an upcoming storm that's going to be coming. Mm. So it can mean like a large event that's going to be life-changing is upcoming. 
or it can be of the roll storm that is coming, whichever way that you want it to be. Uh, a lot of times people will say that it indicates change, uh, like the common expression winds of change. And I've also seen it used in a way to represent like unstoppable force, like something that is just not going to be beholden to anyone, which is where I see it being used in today's episode. Yeah, that's very true. This episode sort of not even like anthropomorphizes it, but it definitely gives it some power, gives the wind, uh, these coho winds as they call them, gives it like a specific weight and power that's not just wind blowing. It's uh, those things you mentioned, like change, unstoppable force. Uh, I also like what you said, like uh, anytime in a movie or television, it's like, oh, a storm is coming. You know, that's big foreshadowing for major dramatic events on the way. It's also just really neat to look at visually. Whenever you see like television shows or movies and you see like the hero and he's like framed with the wind blowing against him. <laughs> and it, it's just, it's so cheesy, but it gets me every time. I'm like, oh, that's amazing. Like, I love it. Yeah, a little bit of that happens to Maurice here in this episode. He gets hit by some uh, some uh, wind. Um, well, well, Charles, what are, we, what are we talking about? Yeah, we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves. So what we're talking about is Northern Overexposure Podcast, where we overanalyze the CBS television series, Northern Exposure. My name is Charles, and I'm joined here with my co-host, Lee. Thanks, Charles. My name is Lee. I'm a big fan of the show. I've seen it a couple times. And Charles, this is your first time watching every episode. And obviously, we're in season four now. You're a bit of a veteran yourself. You're comfortable with these characters. But, you know, as is common with this show, there's always some sort of surprise when you're tuning in. Usually, uh, you don't know what to expect. This is a um, very, like, Joel Maggie Keystone episode, you know, if we were to track their relationship. But, uh, no, there's a lot of stuff happening in town with this sort of, like, seasonal event. I like, I like those episodes when we get, like, those seasonal events. Yeah, there's a whole lot of moving parts in this episode. I want to say there's at least, like, four plot lines give or take, from the uh, recollection of my head. But yeah, you're right that Joel and Maggie are the center keystone of this one, which we haven't had in a long while. Yeah, I guess, I mean, we had like Gross Point, though that was removed from the town of Sicily. And uh, while we mentioned this before, that episode in Gross Point, you know, the story centers on them, but uh, they're usually not in the scene together in that episode. Like they're both there in this house in Gross Point, but Maggie is like trapped in a bathroom. Joel is, you know, schmoozing with uh, the relatives and stuff. They only get a little bit of um, interaction in the beginning and towards the end of the episode. Right. And this episode, there is a distinct lack of Mike Monroe. It is a Mike oh. Monroe-esque episode, which is what lets this episode <laughs> put these two leads with each other. Yeah, how it can actually function. It, it doesn't have Mike, so we can remember that Joel and Maggie have some chemistry. Let's see, has has Mike been gone for a bit? So the last episode that Mike was in was Duets, in which he and Maggie share a kiss. So they totally just forgot about this romantic relationship, decided to table that, and really invest in Joel and Maggie. I wonder what Mike is feeling right now. He's been left out. Well, I guess this is like, you know, tying a ribbon on the whole storyline. I guess it's, maybe it's even a meta commentary because at the end of the episode, whenever they do consummate their relationship, they say, you know, the people are going to be talking about this. They're all just, you know, they've been talking about cutting through this tension with a hacksaw and everything. So maybe <laughs> it's just, you know, the show talking about itself being like, you know, they finally done it and now we don't have to talk about it. <laughs> it's true. Yeah, we'll get into that, I guess, uh, what the repercussions are now with this uh, 
you know, spoiler ahead that Maggie and Joel consummate their love finally. Yeah, let's maybe start from the beginning. I can list off some credits and stuff. So this episode, titled Ill Wind, is the 16th episode in season four. The air date was February 15th, 1993, so a day after Valentine's Day, and that uh, romantic mood, you know, seasonally. And it was directed by Rob Thompson, who directed some key episodes like Spring Break, Burning Down the House, Sicily, a few others as well that are all great episodes. And uh, the writer was Jeff Melvoin, who wrote a lot of episodes already, um, some key ones, Dateline Sicily, Democracy in America, now this episode. And the episode begins with Chris reading to Ed. I don't know if we necessarily need to stick with this plot line, but uh, this was something I wanted to bring up just looking at my notes. He's reading some Raymond Chandler Uh, The book that he has in front of him is, uh, I think it's titled The Midnight. It says Raymond Chandler, really big on the book. I thought it was funny that after Chris reads this passage to Ed, he says, yeah, that was like, you know, Ed says, that was really great. And Chris says, yeah, Raymond Chandler or something. As if Ed can't see that the book says Raymond Chandler on it. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. (laughs) I actually had to look up who that was. Um, So Raymond Chandler was uh, an author who was one of the founders of that genre of hard-boiled detectives, Mm. like the type who would go fight against organized crime and the corrupt legal system as well. So it was like that anti-hero, cool, like uh, cigarette yeah. chain smoking <laughs> fella in the trench coat. You know, like th- those people. Yeah. And, you know, I failed to write down like the actual quote, what he's reading, because um, I figured it would become more apparent. But I actually don't know what what is happening in this opening scene. Does this tie in with, with what Ed's dealing with? Yeah, it actually does. So it talks about the wind, talks about that seasonal wind, especially the one from Southern California, which is called Santa Ana, a dry east wind. And he relates it to how like whenever that comes into town, anything is possible. So yeah, we talked about in this opening soundbite and and actually just here, you know, these winds and the name of the episode, Ill Winds, definitely referring to what they call the cohos or the coho winds in this episode. And I was trying to do some research, like what does that mean, coho? When you search coho, it points you to this specific uh, fish. It is a coho salmon, which is um, sort of like a Pacific salmon species. You know, so that that's that. You know, the, the wind probably isn't named after these fish. I, I searched also coho winds, and there seems to be some articles about uh, like maybe a regional thing. And to my best knowledge, I'm guessing coho must be like an indigenous or like a native term for a region, but I really couldn't figure out what coho meant. Yeah, I was looking into this as well, and it looked a little choppy from what I can get. I could only find two articles, but from my readings, I got that in the year 1997, in the area of Oregon, they have this wind, which is known as the East Wind. That was always what it was called. But in the year 1997, the Oregon chapter of the American Meteorological Society wanted to actually put out a contest where people could name the wind. You know, wow. and it kind of makes sense because Reno has the Wachu Zephyr. I'm not <laughs> too sure how to pronounce it. Northern California has got the Diablo wind. The Great Plains have the Chinook wind. And the Dry East wind I was previously calling the Santa Ana wind is in Southern California. So they put out this contest and about 2,400 of the participants wanted to actually call the wind the Coho Wind. But this was in 1997. This was way after the airing date of this episode. And they didn't attribute northern exposure at all. 
on huh. why they wanted to call it the Coho Wind. There was some explanation, like you said, like the the fish, the Coho Salmon. That might have been one of the reasons it was named after that, because that fish is really strong and tenacious, much like the wind. They also said that maybe it was to go against a Chinook wind that I was saying previously, because that's also an indigenous word meaning like east, and Coho means like west. So I think you're onto something about this having indigenous ties to it. But otherwise, uh, I couldn't really get any good articles about the hard and fast truth of this wind. Yeah, I wonder how many of those people voting for this name had seen this episode and are fans of Northern Exposure. Or I guess what's more likely, you say coho is an actual native word. Is that right? Uh, apparently. Apparently. That's what my guess is like, right? So that that this term means something regionally specific. But I think it's cool. It's a great, I think it's a great name and this like it's a great title in this episode, Coho Wins. And uh, if it really is has um, some bearing or some uh, grounding in indigenous language, that's awesome. And if we tilt the camera a little bit to the right, we can see that there is a risk party going on. We see Joel, Marilyn, Maggie, and Ruthann playing the board game Risk. And I got to say, I spent a lot of my childhood playing Risk. Like whenever I was like 9 to 11 years old, we would always have like this block party Risk things with all like the neighborhood children. And we would all gather at someone's house and we would play Risk. Uh, The thing is, is that when you're nine, you don't really know how Risk is played, much less the countries that are being involved. So I would always hole up in uh, South America, from my recollection. It was either South America or Australia. For South America, I had no good reason for why I should be there. It's not even that good of a... There's no, like, really good strategy for just controlling South America. And then for Australia, there's only one place I can attack you, and it's Asia. Yeah. So you can kind of, like, barricade yourself, but you'll you'll run out of resources because... Uh, Australia doesn't give you that much. Yeah, I remember that. That's not a bad strategy. When I was a kid, I would, uh, you know, I think it was like, you know, pick the pick the places you're familiar with. Like I would go for the United States, but then as I matured a little more, I did focus on Australia as well because it's uh, very few territories that you have to control, and you still get that like ongoing bonus if you control all of Australia. I don't remember if South America is probably the same, like probably fewer territories, but I would go for like Africa a lot. And then there was always that like adage, I'm not sure where from, but the idea that you never start a land war in Asia because it's just so (laughs) impossible to protect. Yeah, you can never control all of Asia. There was too many places where you can be attacked and it was too large of a region. Like, yeah. You just couldn't control it all. But like, it, it's like a, a win more thing. Like if you actually controlled all of Asia, you're just going to win straight out. Like it doesn't matter. Like, yeah, you get an cr- incredible boon for holding it. Like something like seven free, re- I don't even remember how the game works, but I do remember that there's like also another period after I grew a little bit older after that and played Risk uh, was the period of like, very competitive play and it was a thing like you could tell you know which friends you would want to play risk with because you have to be able to be backstabbed and betrayed and broken down like it's like i don't want to play this game with some friends if it's just going to get if it's going to upset me or upset someone else (laughs) Um, so yeah it's a complex game go ahead did you ever uh I'm actually not really that much of a fan of this in board games, but did you do like backroom deals where you're like, if you don't attack me, I'll give you like this or like I won't, I'll, I'll give you X in response. Like it can be done in Monopoly, Risk, uh, the Game of Life, <laughs> yeah. like all those things. Like do you, do you, uh, are you a proponent of that? Because I like to put my foot down and be like, we can't do this. This, this goes on too wild. That's a great question um, because I think I'm a little of both. So 
I don't know, I can't remember if the rules of risk allow you to make those sort of bargains and deals. It probably does, but if it doesn't, um, I would also be, I would be the type that would say, well, technically in the rules, we can't really trade this. So like, if that's the fairness of the game, then I guess I'm going to get screwed here. Cause I can't, even if I have something to offer you, if the rules don't allow me to trade that, um, that's just how the game works. Like I don't want to bend the rules of the game. Having said that I play, I I'm big on board games right now. And, uh, I play lots of games where you can make those sort of backroom dealings, like you said. Like you can, uh, you know, it's like, all right. I mean, this is all virtual now, so we do like uh, we talk like over the computer, and I'll say, all right, go to another voice channel. We're gonna make it like you know, let's get out of the voice <laughs> chat. We're gonna have like a discussion and figure out how to how to make this work. Yeah, I'm always like, I I don't really like to play to win. Because, like in this scene, whenever Maggie is trying to play the win, she's just relentlessly attacking Joel, and Joel takes that as a personal attack, and he breaks down. I don't want to do that in real life either. Like, if I feel like, just consciously, that I'm attacking this player because I that's the way to win, but I know that I'm bullying him for it, uh, I will actually, like, cripple myself to be like, I'll take a less winning strategy, because it's just a game. Like, I don't want to make this guy feel like it's a personal uh, vendetta Charles, right there. Are, are you that type of player? No, you're losing. You have to, if you're playing this game, you have to think of like, what is going to benefit you? What do you get out of this? <laughs> this the objective is to is to win. That's the objective of the game. But I, okay, I kind of see what you're saying here because I think, you know, we can start talking about the scene again too, because this does apply. I think what's happening is uh, Joel is almost berating Maggie for the choices of attack that she's making. Like she's attacking him. And he's telling her, look, like, there's no strategic value in you doing this. I, I mean, we're we were obviously not um, spectating, so we can't tell exactly what the state of the board is. But according to Joel, Maggie is going out of her way to attack him for whimsy. In that case, that would be terrible, you know, if it's not going to help her win. But on the other side of that same coin, maybe Maggie does have some objective, a secret or a hidden objective, or I don't, again, I don't remember how risk is played. Maybe she has some gain that Joel can't see and he's taking it personally. So he might be the bad sport. Uh, in fact, he is a bad sport. He just like quits in the middle of the game. Even, even if Maggie is bullying him, like, I don't know. I guess bullying would also be bad sport, but I'm going to shut up. What do you have to say? Well, maybe, I mean, you're onto something here, but maybe it's all part of the plan though. Like she knows that if she relentlessly attacks Joel, it's going to cause him to break down. He's going to make a much more rash, aggressive decision that he normally wouldn't make. Mm. So this is all like part of the plan by Maggie. Yeah. So what Joel doesn't foresee as like strategic value is actually like a mental attack. Yeah. Yeah, we can't really know without seeing the state of the board. And then even on top of that, what you just introduced is like, there's some mind games going on, which is, uh, you know, that's, you know, if you know how another player reacts and plays, you know, you can use that to your advantage to, to score points and win. Yeah, but unfortunately, I don't think that Maggie foresaw this with uh, them punching each other. <laughs> well, she punches to, him. at the end of the game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, actually, I think Joel is like, you know, he's fed up. He's had it. He's about to leave, and I can't remember exactly how it boils over this way. But Joel basically, you know, Maggie freaks out at him, and he says, you know, go ahead, punch me right here. He like points to his face. He's like, come on. And she does it. She actually punches him. What a what a cold open, man. What a strong, like, wow. 
Yeah, she clocks him in the face, which, you know, it carries on throughout the entire episode. So for the next scene, we see that Joel's walking throughout the cold wind, trying to get to Ruth Ann's store. And when he arrives there, he needs some Advil for his broken nose. And he's still yeah. got a lot of attitude. He's still got a lot of snip on him. And uh, it's kind of snapping back against everybody. Yeah. And like, as you said, he's got like a bandage. He's got a bandage on his face. That's like throughout the rest of the episode. Uh, there's no Advil at Ruth Ann's store. What else? Oh, he had to set his broken nose himself. He says, "Do you do you can you realize how painful that is? Setting your nose back in place, I guess. I'm not sure how you would do that, but doesn't that not grow back naturally? Yeah, there's something about the nose, right? Like if you break your nose, you, your nose just looks broken for the rest of your life, or maybe if it's not set correctly, or I don't know. It, it, I guess it depends on how it's broken. I know that happened to uh, the actor Owen Wilson. Like that's why right. his nose is like that because. Yeah, I got hit in that area. There's also like reconstructive surgery and plastic surgery. So people might get there. Some people get nose jobs even when their nose isn't broken. You know, that's a thing. Oh, that's true. Yeah, you're right. So the next time we see Joel, he's going to Marilyn's house because as we learn, uh, she's just not showing up for work. We played it in this opening soundbite, but um, she's a bit superstitious about these coho wins. She won't leave her house. Uh, she won't come into the office because, as you heard in the soundbite, the wind is bad. Um, Joel's nose starts to bleed at the end of the scene. That's sort of the button at the end of the scene. And uh, a lot of times throughout this episode, Joel will tilt his head back. And I do remember I used to get nosebleeds all the time. I Honestly, I can't – I don't think I've had a nosebleed in like four or five years. But I used to get them all the time as a kid, especially when it was like cold outside, which here it is in uh, Sicily, Alaska, very snowy. Um, but I would always get that advice, tilt your head back. And, uh, I don't know if this is a bit graphic or anything, but yeah, if you tilt your head back, you can feel like the blood trickle down like your nose and your throat. It's gross and it doesn't stop bleeding. I I've always found maybe I was doing it wrong. Um, because I think even medical professionals might've told me to tilt my head back, but the best thing for me was just to really apply pressure. Like just keep that pressure on it. Wait, can you not just like rip up small pieces of tissue and just shove them into each orifice? Yeah, I that could work, you know, um, but I found that the pressure, if you really can cinch it and pressure it, then it'll, you know, it's like if you pr put pressure on a, a, a cut on your hand or something, on a finger, like if you cut your fingers, just apply pressure, there's no blood coming out. But if you just attach a bandage to the same uh, cut finger, the bandage might soak up the blood. It kind of, unless you've got it, you know, tied down pretty tight, you know, to apply pressure. Mm. For me, just the nostril cotton, you know, sort of worked. I would do that. And then I would also apply pressure. I don't know. Well, it seems that Joel doesn't do either one. There's one last note of detail in that scene with Marilyn and Joel that I want to bring up. And it's the use of the word contract where Joel says, I have a contract with you, Marilyn. You have to come in on weekdays and today is a weekday. And then Marilyn says, we don't have a contract. Like, that's not, we have like a <laughs> verbal agreement right there. But I think it's very interesting to note that the word contract appears. And I'm going to reference this later mm. in the episode. But let's go to the next scene with Joel and Maggie. Okay. Which is Joel walking in the street meeting with Maggie about to serve her papers. Yeah, like, well, they're talking in the street and it begins with Maggie admitting to Joel like how freeing and empowering it felt to punch him. And uh, Joel, you know, obviously can't believe hearing this. Like, sure, it might have been a nice release for Maggie, but Joel has a broken nose. Like, where is she going with this? But, you know, before we can figure out what Maggie has got on her mind, Joel, yeah, he serves her some legal papers. 
Let me, uh, let me play the soundbite for this. You're sick. You're in desperate need of psychiatric help. Oh, come on, Fleischman. Everyone knew you had it coming. Oh, well, to the great relief of civilized men, the legal code isn't based on what's considered normal in Sicily, Alaska. You know, around here, assault and battery may be considered all part of an evening's entertainment, but where I come from, it's an actionable offense, okay? Welcome back to reality, Miss O'Connell. What's this, Fleischman? Oh, it's a little legal thingy. So he's going to sue her for uh, damages, I guess, for hurting his face. And he says, you know, like the way civilized people do it, you know, uh, I think Maggie says, you know, go ahead and punch me. I'm giving you a one-time pass. You can punch me right now, eye for an eye style. But jo Joel suggests, uh, insists that the proper way to do it is for him to, you know, get all of her assets through through some legal means. Yeah, I thought that this episode at this point was going to be where Mike comes in to be mm. Maggie's attorney. I thought oh, that's yeah. where the storyline was headed. But uh, no, but it turns out that Maggie decides to retaliate by evicting him, which I, I, I couldn't find the information for it because I think it differs from state to state. I didn't know if she had the right to do that so suddenly. Like, could you evict a tenant within a week? Yeah, that definitely doesn't seem right, but... Again, this is Sicily, Alaska. Maybe there's some strange laws here. Uh, and also, we don't really know the nature of their rental, like leasing contract or whatever it is that uh, where Joel's you know, staying in this cabin. So maybe there's some you know, loopholes there that Maggie's working with. It turns out also, I think it's in like a later scene that uh, Joel's argument, his legal argument, doesn't really have any ground to stand on or doesn't have a compelling case. I find that odd to believe. Like, it seems, I don't know. I know that he said, like, all right, you can punch me, like, right in the nose, but, like, she punched him again, which is the button on this scene. <laughs> like, she, uh, it looks like it's aggravated assault oh this gosh. time. Like, I, I don't know how that's not clear-cut, but I, I'm not a lawyer, so maybe it's a lot more complicated. But, yeah, Maggie assaults him uh, for a second time. Yeah, well, so this is in the scene when she gives him the, or, like, he approaches her, and he's like, what is this? Like, he's got a paper, and Maggie had given him, like, an eviction notice, and, uh, she does at the end punch him again. It's like he says, you broke my broken nose. But um, I also find interesting in the scene, Maggie, you know, ins insinuates that people go missing in Alaska all the time, suggesting that, you know, she's going to have Joel killed and like his body disposed of or, yeah, it's pretty startling. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's such a brazen threat right there, which, uh, you know, I guess this falls into the character of Sicily, Alaska. Uh, <laughs> we get to the next scene, which is Joel approaching Maggie, hoping to solve things in a civilized manner. He wants to talk with her. They want to clear the lines of communication, make sure that they get everything out. Yeah, Maggie's like maybe sawing something or she's using some sort of power tool. And uh, Joel suggests they go take a walk because he wants to discuss some things with her. Obviously, Maggie is not happy with him and does not want to do it. But uh, Joel points out, he's like, I, I would like to get away from that power tool, like whatever that is. Let's just, uh, let me let me talk to you here. <laughs> yeah, and that leads them down to a walk into a barn, which I would have liked to have seen them actually get into because it just cuts to them right, in we this don't, barn. We don't like see the exterior or anything. Right, and inside there is where it's revealed that Joel doesn't really have a leg to stand on and it would cost him a lot of money in order to properly pursue this case in a civil trial. So... Yeah, he tries to appeal to Maggie and says, like, if you drop your eviction notice, I'll drop my lawsuit. She's unwavering, and they're arguing. I actually forget how it happens, but they end up tumbling through the hay. You know, pun intended, I guess, because this is also the scene where they um, 
consummate their romance. But uh, do you remember how it begins? Like how they, because they start fighting, right? And then they start falling through the through the hay. Yeah, uh, I think she's going to like punch him a third time. <laughs> and then Joel stops her. He's like, you know, puts his hands on her to like stop her from punching him. And then they fall off. And yeah. then, you know, dominoes. They end up on top of each other, start, you know, taking each other's, taking their own clothes off, taking each other's clothes off. Um, of course, this is uh, just primetime TV. It's not too explicit. They, uh, I think we cut away on them like embracing in sort of a top-down bird's eye shot. I want to say it was like a top-down shot, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Nice. Well, that is uh, where we leave them. But I think the next time we see them is uh, it's when they're heading, they're like entering the brick, right? Right. They're going into the brick. One follows the other. They're in a much better mood. <laughs> but... They're both suspicious that everyone in the bar is looking at them because they think that somehow the news has now spread throughout town that they're together. And obviously, you know, it's played for comedy. They're saying like, oh, it's like they're obviously paranoid. They uh, don't have their heads on straight. And that's what leads them to get up and announce in front of the whole bar that, you know, they have now finally done it and that they're taking questions now. (laughs) Yeah, they make the announcement, as you said, uh, in no uncertain terms, it starts off kind of vague, like we did it, did what, you know, like we had sex, we had sex together, but still no one really seems to care. You know, even when Maggie and Joel were saying like, oh, I think everyone's looking at us. They know we would get shots of the uh, bar and like the people, the patrons reactions. And sure, maybe you could mistake some of the glances for like looking at Joel or Maggie, but Seems like business as usual, like no one really cares. <laughs> so yeah, like they, they open up for questions, I guess. I don't think anyone's really uh, actively involved there. I, I guess I guess Maggie was right in a way where like everyone just suspected that it would happen maybe. And so this is the result. Everyone's just like, oh, okay, business as usual. That's unsurprising, I guess. <laughs> yeah, what do, what do you think? Yeah, I think that like maybe they didn't need that scene I'm not entirely too sure. Oh, like, yeah. I, I understand why it's there because they're trying to establish that these two characters aren't entirely comfortable being a couple. But I, I almost felt like it was just such a paint by the numbers scene. Yeah. It's like, I guess it's the only thing I can guess is it's sort of a comedic riff after just to show that these characters are, you know, it's a, it's a change from that last scene. We get the stark contrast. I think it's funny that we also learned Joel's middle name. I don't know if we had heard it before, but whenever Joel's joking, like, what, do we, like, make a formal announcement? Like, uh, the parents of Mary, Margaret, O'Connell, and Joel Chaim Fleischman uh, would like to invite you to a to announcement ceremony or something, like a, like a wedding announcement of some sort. Uh, Chaim is uh, Hebrew for life, so... Uh, that would be his, I guess, his Hebrew name, maybe? Yeah, is that actually a middle name? Because I know you say Laheim, but yeah. I, I've, I've never heard of Haim itself as the middle name. Yeah, I don't think I've heard of it as a as a middle name or as a name. Uh, I'm thinking of, I guess, the the band Haim, H-A-I-M, like the girl pop band. Oh, oh yeah. So, But that's yeah. like their last name, I think. So, But I guess that, uh, I would assume that comes from the Hebrew word, but I don't know. And so the next scene, which is sort of a bit of a resolution here, uh, Maggie and Joel are in Joel's office. Uh, actually, she comes to meet him, and they decide that it was just the wind. You know, they decide that they need to talk about what happened, figure out what was going on. Uh, I, I think it's interesting. Joel says, "I think it's Joel." He says, um, "You know, it's just the wind, and, and if that's it, 
the nice thing is if it's just the wind, we don't have to worry about it ever happening again because no more wind. And uh, they, you know, they finally made it there. Like, are they going to have a romantic relationship? You know, that sexual and romantic tension uh, finally breaks. And I think in the end, what we've left with here is uh, just a pretty, it's still a, a positive upbeat, I think, because they're pretty um, friendly to each other. Right. Like, it's a, a nice ending, but it's a return back to the status quo of what they're trying to do. And like I was saying at the beginning of this episode, that it almost looks like it's a meta commentary in that it's the writer saying like, okay, look, they've done it now. Now you guys can stop pestering us. Now we can open nor, now we can open new doors, new avenues for these characters to explore. Like maybe Maggie starts ending up with Mike now. Um, maybe something else happens with Joel. That's what it looks like to me, honestly. Yeah, I'm really curious to see, and I'm really uh, excited for you to see like what happens next with them because uh, at the end of this, it's a bit of a status quo return, like you said. But uh, there is definitely like uh, a milestone or. Uh, a change in their characters, but for the most part, it reverts back to same old, same old. If anything, they're less likely to um, be at each other's throats, at least for the next 30 minutes to an hour. <laughs> but uh, Maggie does say, you know, I think when the wind came by, that made, you know, that change, it was like flipping a switch, I think Joel says. Maggie says, I think the real me is the one that's like constantly at your throat and constantly wants to like, I don't know, do damage to you. Like uh, that is the real Maggie. But these these coho winds exaggerate uh, this strange spectrum of love and hate. So they end up walking out of the office and walking down the street in the beautiful snow. And I have to say, the music on the DVD here is terrible. I I've been a defender of the uh, replacement music because usually they kind of hit the same vibe, and the mu- replacement music isn't that bad. It's sometimes it's pretty good. And while compared to the originals, usually the original music is like top shelf, like great music that would obviously cost a lot of money to get the rights to. But um, sometimes the original music um, I'm not a big fan of, but I have to respect that, you know, someone's job was to place that music originally. Here, yeah, you can forget everything I said about liking the replacement music. This is pretty, I guess, like tonally appropriate, but it's very corny, uh, like pop country sappy. It's got like that pedal steel slide guitar. It's just so cheesy. And uh, I wish I could tell you what the title of the song was. I I could not uh, figure it out with Shazam. Well, does the original one sound better? I I, I didn't listen to it. It's uh, apparently it was Vink's There I Go Again. There I Go Again by Vink's. Yeah. I, you know, this is, again, this is just my opinion. I hated the replacement. I like the, uh, I like the original song. It's, uh, Playful, very like mellow, uh, smooth jazz kind of vibe. And the vocals are very, uh, they're playful. They're like uh, soothing. You know, it's almost whispered in a way. Yeah, it's like a sort of an acoustic guitar accompanying this um, very smooth vocalist. And um, yeah, it's I really love the melody. It's romantic. I think the lyrics are, I wouldn't say necessarily like better, but uh, I think they fit. I don't know. They're... I, I think they're better than the uh, than the replacement. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, sound is like a technique onto itself where you can just really exemplify a work, just take it from like a 7 to a 10. Yeah. And yeah, I got to agree with you. Like on this last scene, it was – like it's not like it doesn't fit 
with what's going on. Like the lyrics and the song are matching it, but it is definitely like a pop country song. It's like something <laughs> that you would find in like a CW show, maybe. Like I, I, don't, yeah. I don't really know. It just doesn't fit with the tone of it, and it takes you out of the scene when you listen to it. But I imagine that like it was just some poor intern that had to like replace all the music, and he's like, "All right, what's the scene about?" Uh, they're like, they finally like did it. Or, all right, like just put on like this song. Like, yeah. Um, and again, like I have nothing with pop country, uh, country pop or whatever. I love all the country music that plays in the brick. And you could even end an episode with that genre. That's fine. But uh, I really do think uh, to piggyback on what you're saying, I, I I think it makes it a lot worse for having this song. Because you could put a lot of different songs on this ending and it's your classic sort of like walk it. Like last episode ended with um, Joel and Marilyn walking away from camera. Now it's Joel and Maggie in this episode. You could do, you could do so much better. Like this is the word, this degrades the scene for me. Yeah, I think you could have actually had uh, no music. Just yeah. had them walk out of the brick. Yeah. Complete silence. Yeah, even it cut out still all, fit. Even cut out all sound. Like just go silent. Like, yeah. Um, okay, well, that's sort of the end of that, you know, it's the end of the episode, end of that storyline. Let's bring it back to the beginning and uh, pick another plot line. Yeah, let's talk about Chris and Maurice. Cool. So this is, uh, you know, sort of set up early in the episode with Maurice and Chris and Ed installing, um, I think, like a new antenna for K-Bear. I've got a soundbite. New transmitter, huh? FCC finally came through. Hell no. I got tired of waiting for those boys in Washington to get off their butts. Huh. You mean we don't have permission for this? No, we don't have permission for it. K-Bear's going outlaw? Yeah, I guess you can say that. All right. <laughs> well, hey, Maurice, how far will this thing reach? Well, not factoring in sunspot activities, I'd say the range would be a radius of about uh, 200 miles. Woo! Yeah. Of course, you know that uh, there's not another town within 200 miles, Maurice. No, not yet, Ed, but there will be. And when there is, Minifield Communications will be ready. This is going to be great, Maurice. The voice of Sicily spreading out over the tundra, communing with caribou, migrating puffins. Yeah, Maurice trying to control what people are going to be listening to out here in the 200-mile radius. And he's also circumventing the uh, the law, like uh, <laughs> yes. you know, the FCC. He's going beyond them. And I think this actually plays into a larger theme in the episode where he's saying that he's going beyond the regulations of what the FCC is imposing on him. Because we can see this throughout the episode where there is contracts whether it is Marilyn and Joel's working relationship of the contract in which he needs to come to work or the legal one between Maggie and Joel where Joel tries to bring a lawsuit or Maggie tries to bring an eviction notice. We can see a lot of these play throughout the episode, but we can see that are all scrapped throughout the episode. They have no bearing because the wind, this destructive force, is way too much for them to handle and they can't even control it. And we can see it at the button of this scene, which is where Maurice almost falls off the building from the wind. So I think that that's actually a really interesting theme that they have going on throughout here, where it's like someone's trying to control something that they cannot control. So in this instance, Maurice is hoping that he can just start up this communication channel. He's hoping that he can go beyond what other people are allowing him to. But inevitably, the wind brings him back down. Yeah, that's a good point. And I think... Uh... Chris really verbalizes it later, which we'll get to, like that whole idea of uh, trying to take control of things that are, you know, uncontrollable. Yeah, I really like your description of this sort of destructive wind 
this force. And um, just really quickly, we see, you know, Maurice almost fell off the roof. Chris catches him, as you said. But uh, Ed kind of rushes to the edge of the roof and looks down. Oh, actually, I guess they're on top of the brick, right? Because like the shot, he looks down. You can see the sign of the brick. And uh, yeah. so maybe they're just putting the uh, transmitter up there. But um, I guess K-Bear must be pretty close. But um, Ed looks over the edge. And uh, this will be sort of, we'll, we'll touch on this when we get to Ed's storyline. But just know that it's set up here. Um, this sort of moment where Ed has that... Um, Call of the Void is what it's called, I think. The Appel du Vide is, I think, the French term. But are you familiar with this sensation? Yeah, it's uh, it's that sensation that you get whenever you're at a really tall location and you think, what would happen if I jumped off here? I, I think I've also seen it before whenever you're in a car and you're thinking, like, what if I just opened the door right now and just fell out? Yeah. Though that one's not really, like, height-based. But, yeah. yeah, I was looking into it, and people don't really have, like, a... Um, objective reason for why this happens. The one that I thought was most interesting was someone saying that it's not that an individual is necessarily suicidal, but rather the experience of high place phenomenon may reflect their sensitivity to internal cues and actually affirm their will to live. Yeah, like you understand how precious and how vulnerable you might be. Like that might fascinate you, but it doesn't mean, and in this case, you know, Ed has to, Ed has to let people know, like, don't worry about me. I'm not suicidal. Um, but it's more that, you know, you understand how, how vulnerable your vitality is, like your life. You could, you know, lose it quite easily if you're not careful. Um, that's kind of a scary thought, but maybe also a fascinating one. Yeah, I think it plays into the theme of the wind, where like, if Ed is way high up there, then just like the tiniest shift in the wind could cause him to fall down right there. So you're examining the relationship in which your life can rapidly change, which is what's happening with Maurice right now, because he's reevaluating his relationship with debt. Debt, yeah. Like he, now he's going to go on kind of feeling he owes Chris, uh, which we'll kind of talk about in this next scene. But I did also want to, I know I keep laying on Ed. We'll, we'll get to Ed, I guess, when we get to his plot line. But um, do they say the word suicidal or suicide in this? Uh, I guess they do, because I think Ed says uh, suicide's not like the, it's not the Indian way. Or do they actually say that? They may not even say the word. Uh, I think Shelly says off yourself. Yeah. I wonder if like there is some sort of um, censor or some sort of restriction, you know, from the network, you know, not to use that word. Yeah, I think that's a possibility. I, I I didn't think about that. But, I mean, the topic matter is that, though. It seems silly to saying, like, you can't say the word. You can discuss everything around it. Yeah. But just the the precision of saying that one word, you can't do it. But, no, I mean, it wasn't, you know, early 1990s. Maybe the rules were that silly. Yeah, I think, no, I think so. Um, I think there are episodes where uh, they neglect or they avoid saying abortion, you know, even though no one has an abortion in the show. Um, they, they don't say that word ever. They kind of suggest it or before someone can say it, they're like, no, 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 You know, they kind of interrupt. Oh, so, things like that. Yeah. That's a good point. Okay. Well, next scene, Chris and Maurice drinking, right. And, uh, um, everyone is now, you know, views Chris as a hero. He's simply like, no, nah, look, it, you know, it's, it's nothing like anyone would have done that. Anyone could have done it. But, uh, regardless, Maurice now feels like that that idea of debt that he owes Chris something. 
Yeah, he feels that now he is the uh, like the renter instead of the landlord situation. Yeah, like he's always felt that he is the one that pays Chris. He is the one that is above him, and now the tables are flipped. But I think there's a really interesting dialogue where Chris is saying that you know some people don't subscribe to the notion that you owe a debt to another individual even though you save their life, which is. You know, it's really nice that they're going in that direction. Because it seems like if this was like a mediocre television show, that would have took forever for them to have gotten to that. Like maybe <laughs> in the second act, yeah. they would have discussed that. But they're going to nip that bud immediately and say like, all right, let's 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 expand on this idea rapidly. So let's talk about the idea of not even giving somebody something back for saving their life. But Maurice doesn't take that for an answer. Yeah, the whole idea of reciprocity, as Chris says, and he cites uh, certain Native American cultures, is what he says. But the idea that saving a man's life uh, or, or just good deeds in general is a person's natural function, and they don't require any special reward. And Maurice you know, recognizes that it's not like Chris saved his life in combat or like you know anything like that. But there's just the simple fact that Maurice has to, you know, he's admitting to himself that, you know, he's he's got to owe Chris. It could also fall into the idea that Maurice is just really aggravated that Chris doesn't align with his worldview. So if we all went in Maurice's world, the person that saved Maurice's life should have demanded something back from him. And because Chris doesn't do that, that means that he has to reevaluate his life uh, perspective and say like, oh, maybe that's not the only correct one. Had Chris actually demanded something from him, then I think Maurice wouldn't have cared at all. Like he would have thought like that's the natural place of the world was for you to have demanded something because Chris bucks that. That's what actually gets him, which again mm. falls into the theme of control. Yeah. So is it in the next scene where Maurice flips and he says, you know, I don't owe you anything? Yeah, that's where he starts losing his cool. Uh, so Chris is in K-Bear, giving off another monologue, and Maurice storms in and says, like, you know, I don't owe you anything. Like, this is, I don't want to have this discussion anymore. The, uh, this is the end of the line. I forget. Why does he reach that conclusion? Yeah, Maurice said, like, you were underneath no obligation to save me. Like, if I had fallen and just splattered on the ground, then so be it. But because you decided to act and save my life, that's on you. That's not on me. So therefore, I don't owe you anything. Yeah. And Chris says, you know, that's fine. Like he seemed, generally does seem okay with that. And I think this is uh, what is going to still like stick in Maurice's craw where he's still struggling with this idea of control. Right. And you see it uh, kind of neatly in the next scene, which is Maurice and Holly going out fishing in this really tumultuous snowy, windy weather. <laughs> and they even have like a small little line where he's like, Maurice is trying to throw out a line and he's having little success trying to battle it out against the wind. And Holling says, hey, are you having trouble, Maurice? And Maurice says, it's like, ah, it's a wind knot. It's damn wind. It's getting against <laughs> me. And then Holling says, ah, it wouldn't have mattered in a way, man. Like they weren't biting in a way. And that's kind of a neat subtext right there. Yeah, that's a great metaphor for um, trying to have that control. You know, there's a reason why this scene is set uh, with them fishing, like in this crazy storm trying to fish. I also find it's cool. I actually never heard of this terminology, but uh, Maurice goes to sit down with Hauling and Hauling offers him coffee, which Maurice turns down, but Hauling says uh, it's unleaded, which is terminology for it's decaf. And so uh, Maurice yeah. agrees. Yeah, go ahead. 
Yeah, I, I actually had to look that up too. I'd never heard of it before, <laughs> unleaded coffee. So I typed it into Google, and the very first article that pops up is a New York Times opinion piece from 1991 asking why everyone's drinking unleaded coffee. Well, <laughs> yeah, I guess that was just the lingo in the 90s. You know, that's what the kids were saying, unleaded, uh, unleaded coffee. So it's in this scene, right, where we realize, or I think Holling says, you, you're no longer in control of your life. Maurice can't believe that he was like fated to be saved by Chris. Like, how did this happen this way? Maurice says he believes that each man makes his own luck, that um, he's the master of his own fate. But now somehow Chris has been fated to, you know, to step in and, and uh, determine what happens to Maurice in this, uh, pin- this pinnacle, this moment. At, on top of K-Bear. Yeah, like, I kind of get that. Like, fortune favors the bold, and decisions are made by those who show up. But still, like, how arrogant do you have to be to be like, oh, there's no <laughs> such thing as luck. Like, yeah. I, I controlled everything. Like, <laughs> it's like, what? <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's definitely some holes there. I don't, I don't get that. Um, the next scene is fascinating. Maurice goes to see Joel and uh, tries to ask him to break down, you know, what is the cost of human life. In your opinion, what is a human life worth? What? Well, I'm just talking raw materials, you know, phosphorus, calcium, that sort of thing. Are you serious? Well, yeah, a ballpark figure will do. This wouldn't have anything to do with Chris saving your life by any chance, would it? Let's hear some figures, Fleischman. Well, as a matter of fact, I had a chemistry professor who once added it up on a blackboard. And I believe, leaving out extraneous items such as gold fillings, the shopping bag price of the adult human body separated into discrete components was something like uh, $14.73. That's it, huh? Well, a long time ago, Maurice, you got to allow for inflation. But it would be uh, somewhere around 15 bucks. More or less. <laughs> I knew life was cheap. Oh, no, we're not talking life. We're talking inanimate elements. I mean, these are building materials. You can't put a dollar value on human life. I'm simply trying to determine, through the most objective means possible, the theoretical bottom line of human existence. Yeah, and I'm telling you, it doesn't work that way. I mean, you read philosophy. We live under a social contract that measures worth in intangibles, like, like decency and fellowship and goodwill, not dollars and cents. Yeah. And like all contracts, it has its terms. And terms are negotiable. And once again, we get the magical words of contract and negotiable. So once again, we're going to see that Maurice is proven wrong in that, you know, there are some things that just can't be contained within your words. Uh, I also think that it's such a reductionist argument that Maurice is using. Like, how does a grown man simply believe that a human life is worth like 15 bucks? <laughs> like, that's like saying like, oh man, like, what are you scared of bullets for, man? It's just a tiny piece of metal. Well, yeah, that's... <laughs> That obviously very reductionist, as you said, uh, it might have something to do with later Maurice like decides to pay Chris a certain amount of money. And he said he calculated it from a projection of what, uh, you know, he might, what Maurice might earn in the next quarter. So maybe he was calculating that plus the cost of his, uh, the actual physical components of his body. Like if he had to. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> rebuild them somehow magically with chemistry he would it would cost him fifteen dollars only um whatever but but yeah, i guess i don't know also wouldn't it be much higher now that i think about it i i buy the argument that he's saying that it's like 15 bucks whatever if you like started from scratch but chris is an adult male i mean he's got like 
kidneys, lungs, <laughs> like things that go into black market for like a pretty, you know, pretty <laughs> substantial price. Like surely you should be factoring that in. Yeah, like um, that's very true because obviously like you could take the chemical components and just say like if you boiled it down, this is what it would be. But obviously like you can't just like make a kidney. That is worth a lot of, you know, like maybe if you look at the ingredients, it's like a ingredients versus recipe or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Complicated. So that brings us to the next scene, which is Maurice bringing Chris $30,000 in, I guess it's like both in cash and in stock options because he says like uh, some of it's also yeah. in this. But he, the key takeaway is that he's giving him a large amount of money in order to trade off on this supposed debt that he has. But Chris kind of, you know, blows him off. Yeah, I think it's interesting. Maurice says, I don't care if you want it or not. You have to take it because it's just he's admitting, you know, like no matter what to me, to, to me, Maurice, if you don't take this, it's just going to weigh on me and you could hold it over me later in life, Chris, of course, says, no, like, no, I would never do that. That's something maybe more uh, akin to your character, but it's not something I would do. I don't care if you want it or not, you're going to take it. Maurice, we've been over this. I don't want anything from you, man. I know that's what you said, but that dog won't hunt. If I let you get away with this, you've got something to hold over me for the rest of my life. No matter how many Bibles you swear on, eventually, someday, when I least expect it, you're going to come to me and want to cash in. No, I won't. That, that's what you would do. Reese, I don't slight you for your opportunistic streak, but... Oh, come on. Let's put this thing to bed right now. The buck stops here. Look, I, I understand what you're trying to do. I even think it's interesting in a primitive domino theory of the soul kind of way. What the hell are you talking about? I'm talking about that metaphysical thorn that you got sticking in your side. What thorn? I'm trying to reach a settlement here. No, you're not, Maurice. You're trying to recapture the illusion that you're in control, and you're not. Man, nobody is. I mean, we're dust. We're atoms. You and I are bound together in ways that we can never comprehend. What happened up on that roof is an extreme example, but we depend on each other every day for our mutual survival, and I just... Listen, I, I can't take money for that. I think it's pretty noble, Chris says... You know, even if it wasn't for that event on the roof, every day we depend on each other in maybe small ways, maybe large ways, but, you know, it's impossible to look past it. We can't constantly be owing each other uh, because, you know, it's a, it's like a mutually beneficial relationship. I guess that's what all humanity is. Right. I, I think about that a lot whenever I'm driving long distances. I, I think about the person or people that built the road that I'm driving on. Mm. I, I just can't help but think like, <laughs> uh, some guy had to spend, like, uh, we, we live in a really swampy area, so they had to have, like, built a bridge yeah. in, like, the basins and stuff, which is, is like, incredibly complicated. I, I think to myself, like, the person who built this is probably long gone, but, like, man, he, he built something that's going to affect hundreds of thousands of people in their lives in such a drastic way, building these uh, lines of travel right there. And you, you can't be like, all right, well, I owe this guy my life now because he built me like a bridge. Like you just have to think like the contributions that one man does for another, <laughs> he just goes on from there. And just, you know, we just take it and just appreciate it. Yeah. You know, Chris also sums up what we've been kind of circling around that Maurice is trying to recapture the illusion that he's in control when uh, in reality, nobody's in control. Well, let's talk about a really minor plot line that's happening throughout this episode, which is the sheep farmer, Enrique. Yeah, Enrique. Oh, I forgot his last name. He's, he does say it at some point. Enrique is this shepherd. You know, at some point, 
Uh, Chris does a radio broadcast because there's all these sheep walking down Main Street saying, like, if these are your sheep, you know, they're here, so come get them. And this character, Enrique, comes into town and uh, gathering his sheep. So, you know, they're, they're, they're throughout this episode peppered in, you know. Like in the brick, sometimes he'll have some sheep. Uh, he seems pretty, not like depressed, but just kind of like, you know, this is, uh, it seems like a crazy event. Like all your sheep ended up in Sicily. Like, isn't this crazy you found them? And he's his reaction is more or less, you know, I'm a shepherd. Like, this is what I do every single day. I just watch the sheep. I got to guide them where to go. Like, this isn't anything new for me. Right. It's more like he's regretting his life decisions up to this point. Like, what led him down the road to become a sheep farmer, to have to go take care of these animals right there? He even remarks that sheep aren't very smart (laughs) compared to a cow or everything. But actually, sheep are pretty bright. So according to a 2001 study by Keith Kendrick, who is now at the University of Electronic Science and Technology in China, they find that sheep can recognize and remember at least 50 individual faces for more than two years. Wow. Uh, Caroline Lee of the CSIRO in Australia has also studied sheep intelligence, and she discovered that sheep can learn how to navigate out of a complex maze. Sheep are actually surprisingly intelligent with impressive memory and recognition skills. They build friendship, stick up for one another and fight, and feel sad when their friends are sent to the slaughterhouse. There you go. They're not dumb. Uh, okay, maybe cows and pigs are, like, way smarter, but sheep aren't Sheep aren't dumb. I don't know. Who's to say that? Uh I thought it was also funny in that scene. He's, I think he's talking to Ruth Ann and she's like, you know, what do they say? Uh, leave it alone and it'll come home. And Enrique says, no, that, that's for cows. <laughs> he says he's Basque, that his tradition, his family tradition being a Basque is uh, to, to farm sheep, to be a shepherd. And uh, you did point out, he says like, what are people going to say about me when I'm gone? He even thinks about, yeah, maybe I'll farm cows instead. Like maybe that's what I should do. Though, I guess since we're on him, can we just keep, can we just finish him up? He he uh he has a moment where he realizes he's in like the right line of business, I guess. Yeah, in a roundabout way. And that happens in a scene where Maurice is approaching him in the bar and Maurice is asking, hey, can I buy one of your sheep for like 125 bucks? And <laughs> he's all the married for it. He's like, oh yeah, definitely, man. Pick whichever sheep you want. That one right over there is fantastic. And then Maurice reveals that he's just going to toss that sheep off the building which is what leads them <laughs> oh to gosh. go, you know, he's just like, no, absolutely not. This is a Romney Marsh sheep. They have prize wool quality. This is not fodder to the feed for you to just throw off of your science experiment, which enrages him and kind of makes him realize that like, hey, I am a sheep farmer. I care for these sheep. The money wasn't everything. And yeah. Yeah, he feels uh, he feels like he's won some sort of battle by explaining to Maurice, you know, the, the value of this sh- sheep's... Uh, wool. He says, hand weavers depend on these sheep. It's a little corny. Uh, it's tidy, but it's a little corny. Basically, once Maurice says, stormed off, he's like, you don't know what you you just lost here, you know, $125. Enrico says out loud, I'm a shepherd. And he's smiling. He's like, I get it. Like, that's what I am. Yay. And uh, it's a nice, tidy little ending for him. But uh, But yeah, a little obvious, I guess. Okay. So for Maurice, the next time we see him is, it's with Chris, right? Yeah, it's with Chris and K-Bear. Okay, yeah. So Chris, Maurice, Maurice has got these coconuts that he wants to show Chris. Uh, He said he got a dozen of them and dropped them off the roof. And for three of them, they exploded. Five of them partially fragmented. And uh, three of them remained intact. But 
the last one, like if you're counting, that's 11. So the 12th one, or at least one of them out of the 12, cracked. But if you look at it, he like opens up the crack and he shows like the milk was still inside. The milk was intact. He pours the coconut out. Like it didn't lose any of its uh, insides. So yeah, I mean, there is, I guess there's a statistical outcome, but also just the fact that there is a possibility, a non-zero possibility, like a real possibility that Maurice could have fallen off that, uh, the brick and survived. How, why did he need coconuts <laughs> to surmise that? He wanted to test sheep first, I suppose, which is a little more morbid, but, uh, he said he, he said he did cantaloupes and melons first, and then he moved on to coconuts. Yeah, but like, couldn't he have eyeballed it? Couldn't he have like looked at the building, you know, <laughs> measured it out, and been like, I guess I didn't have internet back then, but you could have just Googled like, can human beings survive a fall of 20 feet? Or like, sometimes. All right, cool. Sometimes. <laughs> he should have asked Joel, because Joel could really give him some, uh, you know, I mean, he would tell him like the worst possibility outcome, but also like he probably could tell him that, you know, there's a chance you could survive with a lot of broken bones and such. Yeah, I... I guess it also is dependent on where he's landing. Like, is he assuming that he's going like head first into the concrete? <laughs> Even if he lives, which, you know, he's, that's his outcome. He's like, I'm not going to die. Wouldn't Maurice still feel like he owed Chris like three months of his life or something? You know, if we're really getting down to that argument of the, uh, you know, val- the money value, the control. But I guess since it's no longer fatal to uh, Maurice, he can he can live with it. Yeah, so this is once again Maurice trying to delude himself into thinking that he has control over his life, that he is not beholden to Chris. And Chris, being the good sport that he is, doesn't really fight him on it. And he's like, all right, you, you know, I didn't cash in the check. Here it is. You know, it's all fine. And yeah, it's just a way that they uh, tied up that that plot line. Yeah, I guess in the end, like, uh, none of the characters have too much change, but we do have a resolution to this problem. But uh on the inside, I think Maurice is probably still the same old Maurice, only now he realizes that uh, you don't die if you fall off the brick. <laughs> I guess I you may not. But yeah, that's the that's the termination of their plot line. Um, but we've got, I guess, one left, right? Because we kind of talked about the shepherd. Might have been like one of the subplots. Ed, which we touched on at the beginning of this plot line, is also set on his own journey throughout this episode. Right. Ed is really fascinated on the way that life can come to an immediate end right there. So he's asking the townsfolk of Sicily all sorts of morbid questions. So, for example, in the beginning, where Ed is eating with Maurice and Chris at the brick, Ed asks Holling, has he ever thought about jumping off the Green River Gorge? And Holling says, like, no, I don't think I've ever really, uh, you know, wanted to, but, you know, it's about a thousand feet. You could do a lot of thinking right there. And yeah, that sends Ed into, you know, searching out more ways to die. Yeah, he talks to, you know, we're always cutting back to Ed. He talks to like Dave about poisons. Dave says, you know, food poisoning. Like he had some bad salmon once and threw up and he was sick. Uh, he asks Shelly, doesn't he ask Shelly um, for her opinion on a way of, on a method of death? Yeah, I think he asked her about hanging. Oh, like, yeah, he's obviously, but Shelly is the one who really, at least we see, she really takes notice of this uh, behavior and she actually seeks out Ed to make sure, make sure he's all right. Yeah. Ed even mentions that uh, someone spent like 10 minutes in a gas chamber. Oh yeah. And that's how long it took him to pass away. I actually read that uh, it's super inhumane to kill someone by uh, uh, like lethal injection because apparently- you can get to like the wrong area and it just causes them pain. 
Yeah. And it also costs a lot of money and uh, in terms of like paperwork. There's a lot, there's a really good episode of, um, I think it's called More Perfect, like the Radiolab spinoff about the Supreme Court decisions. And one is about the death penalty. And they talk about this uh, this lethal injection. It's a cocktail. It's like a three-part injection where like part of it is like a numbing agent. Part of it is like like a paralyzer. And part of it is like what actually kills you. So for this to be a humane way of uh, execution, you want to numb the person so they can't feel it when they're actually being killed. And then you want to obviously kill them with the <laughs> with that part of the injection. And then that paralytic, like the part that paralyzes you is more for, I guess, for us on the outside, right? It's like, we don't want to watch this person suffer. And in fact, it, I guess there are there is reason to believe that you know, that um, numbing agent could fail and we would never know because the person is paralyzed and they're just feeling this uh, crazy intense burning pain as they're being killed uh, because the numbing agent maybe didn't work. Uh, it's very tricky, but yeah, that, that would be a reason to believe that this is still quite inhumane way of uh, execution. Right. There's a, on a uh, let's end this one on a lighter note. Yeah. There, there's a joke from Thirty Rock where Liz Lemon asks Leah Pachimin for a flu shot, and Leah says like, "Ah, I really hate giving shots. That it's not really my favorite part of the medical profession. My favorite part is attending executions." Whoa! All right. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, how did we get? Oh yeah. So you said the gas, uh, poison mm-hmm. gas. But yeah. So Ed has been contemplating methods of dying and what it might feel like that whole sensation it's like asmr but but for <laughs> the call of the void for for ed he's like <laughs> really fixated on this idea um yeah i don't know i just know pe- some people who who listen to a- asmr really get into it and like that's a thing for them now but uh Whatever, whatever. Oh, I'm not trying to. I like ASMR. It's fine. Um, but uh, uh, for, for for Ed, that's the call of the void. Um, so Shelley checks up on Ed, and uh, he explains it's not the Native American way. It's not the Indian way to uh, to off yourself. He ends up taking Shelley to the railroad tracks, and uh, they're walking along the tracks. Ed bends over and kind of puts his ear to the tracks. He can hear the train coming. And he hands Shelly uh, a coin or some coins, and he's like, "Yeah, this is where we, uh, you know, place the coin down on the tracks." By the way, we never we never get the outcome here. Like, I guess they flatten their coins and they take them away, but uh, right, we don't see them again after this scene, right? Yeah, this is the ending scene right here. Uh, hang on, okay. Um, they they do say the word suicide. I okay. was just skipping through in that scene. I happen to see the subtitle "suicide." Okay. Suicide's not the Indian way. Okay, there you go. That's what. Okay, so he does say suicide. It's not the Indian way. Yes. So, sorry, sorry for uh, no, no, uh, no, 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 no. getting you off that. I, I just saw that thing right there. But uh, yeah, I actually thought it was really interesting that they brought a coin. Uh, my mind immediately went to thinking it might have been a reference to crossing the River Styx because you have to have like a oh, coin yeah. to pay the ferryman. Uh, I think oftentimes, didn't they stick the coin like, didn't they like jab it into their forehead or something? Did you know anything about this? Oh, I don't know about, if you're talking about like mythology, I know coins are placed, you know, uh, they used to be placed on the dead body's eyes to keep them shut. You know, cause that guess, was it. Okay. Yeah. So like, yeah, I guess cause your eyes might stay open after you die. So they might put some weighted coins on your, 
eyes. And I guess you also bury people with, uh, that was a tradition, burying uh, the dead with some valuable items. I like this scene, the, the very ending scene, which is Ed and Shelly yelling. And the train is going by so fast that it creates its own wind right there. And they're ah. feeling the rush of the wind going across their face. You can see it on both of their hair going uh, against it. And yeah, I mean, that's like my favorite application of wind, like I was saying. It's super <laughs> cheesy, but it makes for great visual imagery of someone's hair just being blown back and they're just being taken in the moment of this gust of wind. Definitely. It's so almost joyous, like a joyous celebration of life and death. And it's this cacophony of this train roaring past and they're just screaming and howling too like they end up i think ed is howling but uh yeah it's just kind of an exuberant expression i i really like this scene okay charles this is the point in our episode where we're going to invite on a guest to give us their opinion of the episode you know typically on this show we like to introduce the show to someone who has never seen it before uh we like to get the sort of like modern opinion the outside opinion on northern exposure for this episode, it's going to be a little different because we are inviting on someone who has seen the show before, is a fan, and in fact is probably the reason why I know about the show, why I watch this show. Now, Charles, we just did an episode recently with Jay, who is uh, our friend in high school, and we practically watched this entire series. We would like marathon it. Uh, this is like sort of my introduction to the show. But the reason why Jay turned me on to the show is because his mother, Charlotte, uh, who was a guest actually before on this podcast, uh, she got a hold of the DVDs and introduced us to the show in that way. Uh, so Charlotte was on at the season one finale, Aurora Borealis. And uh, we heard a little bit from her then, but now in season four, I thought it would be uh, fitting to bring her back and see if we could talk to her about, well, this episode, but also just, you know, what has happened so far in the series. So let's see if we can get a hold of her. All right. So we have Miss Charlotte here on a video chat with us. Hey, Miss Charlotte, you there? Hi. Awesome. So you may remember her from the episode Aurora Borealis, and uh, she's the mother of Jay, who was the recent guest on Gross Point. And uh, she's sort of the reason why we started watching the show. So, uh, Miss Charlotte, we wanted to know, like, how did you first see this show? Well, I did not watch it when it initially aired because I had two babies at home and I didn't <laughs> have time to watch TV. But in later years, my brother kept telling me he thought I would like the show. And uh, probably in 2007 or eight. He loaned me his DVDs. He had, the I think, only the first three seasons, and he loaned them to me, and I started watching them. And I just have a thing for shows with quirky characters, and, you know, it's kind of semi-serious, but not at all serious. So <laughs> I just really liked it, so I introduced it to my son, Jay. And the rest yeah. is history. I think I created a monster. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, You've created this podcast. Um, yeah, no, that makes sense. I do remember like Jay saying, or you saying you had borrowed the DVDs from your brother, but that's cool. Like, so you, we kind of discovered you and I and Jay discovered it around the same time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But yeah, so uh, we're obviously in season four, this episode, uh, Ill Wind Today, which is like a key Maggie Joel relationship milestone. Did you have any like favorite moments from seasons before or what, what was it that maybe like hooked you on the show early on? Well, I don't know. It's just the, the whole premise of, of this small town and everybody is so different from 
anyone else you've ever met. You know, they're they're <laughs> the characters just have their own personalities and are just they don't try to be funny, but they're hilarious. I, I guess that's it. Yeah. <laughs> like they're not working hard to like crack jokes, but it's just really entertaining to watch. It's just funny. Yeah. Do you think you could ever find yourself living in a town like that with 859 oh, yes. people? Really? Yes. As a matter of fact, we visited Roslyn, Washington. And uh, after I got home, I started looking on, you know, Zillow to see how much property. <laughs> and it's really expensive there. Though. It really is. Uh, we stayed in a, a bed and breakfast. As a matter of fact, the closing scene of this episode, mm. uh, Maggie and Joel are walking down the street and you can see a hill in the background. The road curves off to the right and it, you can't tell, but it also goes to the left and up on top in between those two roads is at that time it was called, um, I want to say Huckleberry Inn or it might be Mulberry Inn. I can't remember which it was, <laughs> but anyway, we stayed there. It was a, it was a, a bed and breakfast with no breakfast. But anyway, we, we stayed there when we visited Roslyn. We walked all around the town, and it's just very quaint, very old. Uh, it looks, ex- I mean, this was in 2014, I believe, and it looked exactly like it did for the wow. you know, filming of, of Northern Exposure. Not much had changed. The hardware store was there, and the village, village pizza. Joel's office was there. Of course, it was a souvenir shop then. K-Bear was there, but they were in the process of moving it. I don't know exactly where they were going to move it to, but it was in the location where you saw in the, wow. in the episodes. So oh, it, it's wow. just really, I, I would love to live in a town like that. Yeah. I keep telling Charles, like at some point, either like a Patreon bonus episode or just like, we got to get to, we've got to get to Rosalind at some point just to see. Oh those. yeah, you do. Yeah. Well, today we'll talk about Ill Wind. So the, you know, the 16th episode in the fourth season, obviously we, we talked about this, Charles, it's like these crazy, uh, the Coho's wind. Miss Charlotte, did you, what did you notice in this episode? Some things that stuck out to you, things you, uh, you might want to speak on. One thing I looked up Coho winds. Yeah. I, I don't know if you've looked, have you looked that up? So we looked it up. We have some theories, but what, what have you got? Well, the only thing I found was in 1997, which was after this show aired, they had a contest to name the, the Eastern Easterly winds and they came up with the name Coho, but it never, I didn't find anything that mentioned Northern exposure or an Indian name or yeah. you know anything like that. It, it was, there's a fish called Coho. Yeah. But uh, so I don't know how they connected. I don't, I don't know how that <laughs> happened. Yeah, we were right. talking about we were talking about this. Maybe it's like um, maybe it was inspired by the show somehow, but maybe not. Charles, what what did you kind of conclude here? Yeah, I think that we said that uh, because it came out in 1997 and the episode aired in 1993, it was a, a four year gap right there. Um, they didn't attribute it to Northern Exposure for why they wanted to submit that name. Uh, it was like the one of the rare times that like the internet uh, failed me, where like I couldn't find like that specific <laughs> piece of information that I needed. I don't know if we need to like look through. Um, what, what are they called? Almanacs or like um, I'm I'm really showing encyclopedia age here. or something. What what is that thing? What is a physical thing of Wikipedia? What what is that? Encyclopedia. Encyclopedia. <laughs> 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 I don't know if that's what we need to look through to find out about Coho wins, but I, yeah, I couldn't really find anything else on it. Uh, well, I just wonder if maybe the person the, the article we read about that. Uh, they just weren't aware of it. You know, maybe yeah, that yeah. really was an Indian you know, name for it or something right. that he just wasn't aware of. And whoever suggested the name Coho may have known that. And they selected that as the winner of the contest. I don't, I don't, 
didn't make sense to me why uh, somebody in Northern Exposure, the writers must have, you know, had a premonition. <laughs> That's what we concluded. Like, uh, I think it's a native word, but obviously we couldn't find any confirmation on that, but it, it feels like that's probably what it might be. So, well, it, it's almost like you finally get to see Maggie and Joel do what everybody thought was going to happen all along. Yeah. It was a, a literal roll in the hay, which I thought was hilarious because yeah. you know, you, I guess you've heard of that expression of roll in the hay, but that's exactly what they did. They rolled in the hay. So, yeah. And like you said, uh, like every, what everyone was expecting like the audience of the show, but also I love how in, in the show, Maggie says, you know, they all expected this to happen. You know, everyone's looking at us now. Funny. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> I love yeah. that scene because it's like the people in the restaurant, they could care less about it. They weren't paying any attention to Maggie and Joel and, and, but they had to make their announcement and everyone <laughs> listened and they said, we did it. And it's like, did what? <laughs> so, yeah. And then they all go back to eating their, you know, and talking to each other. And I just, you know, yeah. it was just really unnecessary for them to have done that, but it made the show hilarious. So I'm wondering if, uh, like, how they're going to explore the relationship between Maggie and Mike again, because it looks like they're going back to the status quo at the end of this episode, but we're not entirely too sure. But yeah, I, I'm not too sure how they're going to do it with Mike, but I also wanted to ask you, Miss Charlotte, uh, what is your opinion on the character of Mike Monroe? I don't know. I feel like he was just kind of <laughs> thrown in there for something different. I don't, I don't know. I wasn't thrilled about the that whole scenario with him and Maggie, but it's kind of like Maggie needed an excuse to be away from Joel, and so they gave her Mike. It just they never fit, and you know, it was just kind of a strange character but of course everybody's yeah. strange you know in sicily alaska so i guess mike fit right in in a different way exactly mm. yeah we kind of talked like i think mike it makes sense that someone as weird as mike would be there but like he fits in but uh he does like kind of steal the spotlight there and shift the focus i i never really liked him you know the first time i saw it uh because he's such a a diversion between um Maggie and Joel, but I've definitely come to appreciate them more, like having seen it more and more because we actually had talked to a lot of, or we had posted in the fan clubs on Facebook and uh, online Reddit and Twitter. And it's surprising that, you know, I thought, you know, no one would like Mike, but a lot of people are really, you know, can really like the, really appreciate the character. So trying to, trying to take it uh, from another perspective. Yeah, that's true. You said that you were rewatching the show a lot, Miss Charlotte. I was wondering if there was any characters that initially when you watched it in 2007, you were like, I don't care for this character whatsoever. But then rewatching it now in like 2020, 2021, you were, you were thinking like, oh, no, 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 I'm totally changing my mind. Like this character is fantastic. Has that happened? Or like the, even just the opposite being like, uh, I love this character. Now I hate him. Well, Mike might have been one of those characters. <laughs> it's like he was just kind of there, but... It, it, when I would rewatch it, it was like I, I could have skipped those episodes, you know, because yeah. not that I didn't like him. I like the actor, but I mean, I just I just felt like it was out, out of place. I don't know. But as far as all the other characters, I cannot think of any that I disliked from the beginning because, I mean, you know, like Maurice, he's a big jerk, but um, you can't help but like him because that's who he is. So there's really no one that I disliked. I think I, I can agree with that. Like, uh, 
I think sometimes, like particularly in the earlier seasons, you don't get to see a lot of like Ruth Ann or Shelley, but like or any of the characters. The further you get in, you see more and more about them. But I think from the start, I was really invested in all of them. You know, mm-hmm. yeah, it's hard not to like them. Right. I think I started to come around on Shelley because initially in the yeah. beginning, in like season one and two, I felt like she she felt like an accessory. To uh, Maurice or Holling, and she didn't feel like she had a really well fleshed out character, in my opinion. But as the series went on, and especially in this season, I felt like she had a lot of standout moments. That it didn't make her older than what she was. Like I appreciated that they still depicted her as like uh, somewhere in her twenties. She would always relate her life experiences to when she was still in beauty pageants and everything. But that's just what she was about. That's her character. She doesn't have to go full on Chris Stevens philosophical or really know like the subtle nuances of how philosophy works. She's just, you know, a simple small town girl and she's trying to relate her experiences to the greater scheme of things. And I really appreciated that that the writers were able to write her in that manner. She can she can be so wise in some of the things she did, says and does. And yet, at the same time, she's still a little kid because yeah. in this episode, she and Ed were just, you know, having a great time, is screaming when the train goes by and things like right. that. So it's like she's still that immaturity is still there, but in some ways, she's wise beyond her ear, her years. So yeah, me and Lee were actually talking about this. What do you think the coin that they placed on the railroad tracks, Ed and Shelley? What do you think that means? Like, why do you think they did that? Well, have you ever done that? Uh, no, I have never actually done that. Yeah, as a matter of fact, when our children were young, we lived <laughs> in a town that had a train track right through the middle of town, and we would put a penny on the track, and after the train would go by, it, you'd go find the penny, and most of the time it had fallen off the track, but, I mean, it was mashed flat, you know, and I think that was Ed, you know, he'd been wondering what it would be like to be hit by a train or jump off the bridge and those kind of things, and he substituted a penny for a body, I suppose, and <laughs> saw the result, you know, how bad it could be because it really does mash it flat whenever the train rolls over it. You know, it doesn't just fly off the track and stay whole. It, it gets mashed as just a big piece of metal. You know? <laughs> oh, okay. That's a good answer. I didn't think about that, how he would want to relate it to um, if he was being substituted for the penny. Yeah. Maybe like also like the, the state change from like, being alive <laughs> to dying, but I guess yeah, it's a penny, it's inanimate, yeah. so. Yeah, yeah, it was a, a simple way to do it, yeah. Yeah, a safe way. Maurice in this episode wants to drop sheep off of a building, oh, God, which no. is kind of inhumane, but, but hey, goes for brought, coconuts. But hey, that thought brought the shepherd to his senses. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I that's a whole say, other story. I wanted to say, uh, I actually kind of peeked at the uh, special features, the like deleted scenes for this episode, just uh, like right before we were starting to record. Cause there's just a few, there's like really small snippets, but there is like a scene where Maggie is sitting in a booth at the brick with the shepherd Enrique. Yes, I and saw she's, that, yeah. Oh, you watched, did you watch the yeah, deleted scenes? Yeah, oh, cool. Yeah. 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 What, what does she say? She's just kind of like, um, oh, it's all right. Like it's a pretty good job. You get to be outside most of the time. Like she's trying to cheer him up, I think. Yeah, yeah. I, he needed some encouragement, I guess. I don't know. He was just down on his job until yeah. Maurice gave him a reason to be a shepherd. You know, yeah. his sheep were valuable. <laughs> but uh, I thought it was kind of funny that, um, you know, you see all the sheep out in the street in front of K-Bear, 
And then in another scene, when the shepherd's in the brick, there's a few sheep in there with him. Yeah. <laughs> why, why? What sheep did he select to go into the brick with him? You know, why? why? <laughs> it was just funny to have them there, you know. <laughs> it is interesting that, like, you know, the problem is there's sheep in the in Main Street. Like, let's figure out who whose sheep these are. And the guy shows up and he's like, okay, great. You've got your sheep now. But for the rest of the episode, they're just still there. They're just still all over yeah, the Yeah, I know. They're everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> and I thought it was funny how Chris was saying, you might want to leave early for your commute this morning. Well, <laughs> there's not much of a commute in that town. <laughs> Maybe you could walk wherever you needed to go. So, Yeah. There is another deleted scene uh, or note that I took from the deleted scenes uh, where Chris has a little monologue. You know, he's talking about what he learned from this whole experience of saving Maurice's life. But I like that he says, he basically says something like, you know, here's what I learned. No man is an island, but some are peninsula. Yeah, not, I know. <laughs> that was strange, and I don't know if I can interpret that. Yeah. <laughs> is he is he acquitting the, the quote? You're saying that uh, no man is an island, but some are a peninsula. That's the quote, right? Yeah. So he's calling some of us. Calling some of us Florida, then. <laughs> the Florida it's man. Not, Maurice is a Florida man. It's an insult. I guess. No no insult. No, no offense to people from Florida. But, um. One thing, this may, it, it just hit me when it happened, but when Enrique Lopez, the shepherd, came into K-Bear to claim his sheep, he asked Chris, have you ever been a shepherd? And then it goes to Chris and the, the beard, the hair is a stereotypical <laughs> Jesus. I yeah. mean, you know, you see pictures of Jesus. Chris looked like Jesus. He said, have you ever been a shepherd? And it goes to Chris. And it's like, yeah. I, I really think they were trying to connect that there. But And Chris, of course, Chris says no. <laughs> so <laughs> I didn't catch that. Yeah. yeah, I didn't catch that. I think you're totally right because they do that. Like uh, that one thing I remember is in um, Burning Down the House when Chris is trying to build the trebuchet, there is a shot where he's got like children following after him and he's, Pulling He's like got, a big pillar yeah, of wood, yeah, and it's yeah. very Christ-like imagery throughout and, that episode. And even in, in this episode, he's, um, you know, he saved Maurice's life, and to him, mm. it wasn't a big deal. It was just natural. He yeah. just, it, it's what humankind does, you know. And it, it's almost like that's another message, you know, they're getting across, and just kind of a little parallel there. I'm, I'm not saying Chris Stevens is Jesus, but you know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, some some Christ-like philosophy. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> it's interesting that he never really invokes uh, Christianity. And he's always, even in this episode, I think he was talking about like concepts from Native Americans and how, mm -hmm. you know, he doesn't, like Maurice doesn't owe him anything because it's just part of human nature to help your fellow man. So, yeah, I, I think there was someone that we were talking about recently, Lee, in a uh, previous episode where we said that it was uh, someone that Chris had brought up that was really big into interfaith. Like it would weave yeah, a bunch of different it? religions together. Yeah, I can't um, remember who Chris that was. Stevens kind of embodies that. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, he's always like you know Buddhist. Uh, I think did he did he reference Islam in this episode? Uh, maybe I don't know if he referenced but... it this one, but he definitely has before. Yeah, you were saying Miss Charlotte, like he's the closest thing they have. I think that's what Shelley says. He's like it's the closest thing that we have to God. You know. Yeah, well, when Shelley went to confession to him, whichever episode that was, you're the closest yeah. thing there is to a priest. You know, because <laughs> she was yeah. Catholic. <laughs> <laughs> that was uh, I want to say that was um season two premiere, but I've forgotten what it's called. I don't remember yeah. either. But... <laughs> 
good episode. Let's see, Charles and I, when we were talking about this episode, we spent a lot of time talking about risk at the beginning. Are you, uh, what is your relationship to the board game risk? I've played it a few times and personally, I don't think it's fun, but (laughs) (laughs) for those who are into world, you know, conquering the world or the earth, you know, it's, and Joel was quite serious about the game they were playing with Ruth Ann and uh, Marilyn and Mackey. He was all about strategy and what countries would be the best ones to conquer. And Maggie was just conquering whatever she wanted to conquer. And that's where the trouble began well, yeah. that day. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's so many. Like he, I think he breaks his nose so many times in this episode <laughs> from arguments. <laughs> <laughs> and he deserved it. I'm sorry. <laughs> I mean, he did like point, you know. Yeah, like, he did. He did. I I understand him being surprised and uh, upset that he got punched in the face, but yeah, maybe he deserved it a bit. Well, the second time when she hit him, the second time, and he said, "You broke my broken nose." <laughs> he just he just would he was relentless. He would not leave her alone. He would not be quiet. He just kept <laughs> on and on and on and on. And finally, she just had enough when he called her frigid. That was yeah. it. <laughs> she hit him a second time and broke his nose again Charles we didn't talk about this but there's like the scene well we talked a little bit on it where Maggie says alright you can punch me now like this is your free chance to do it and Joel won't do it obviously but the there's like an extra there's like some guy from the town and he says punch her doc how strange would that be if he actually did punch her and then she goes into his office immediately because he's the town doctor he's like all right now tell me what your troubles is it's like when you see it started when you punched me it's like oh i see your diagnosis all right oh man yeah charles you got to do a punch up on this script you should have that scene in <laughs> well we could talk about ed and his obsession with dying and ways to die and it's I thought it was funny. He started out talking to Holling, asking if he'd ever thought about jumping off the bridge. I think it was the Green River. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Holling's just kind of matter of fact. He's going about his business, drying the glasses. And he tells him it's about a thousand feet down. And <laughs> Ed just goes on about it. And Holland stops and looks at him. And he said, you want anything to eat? <laughs> it just totally, it does. It goes in one ear and out the other. It doesn't affect calling at all. That it's yeah. talking about basically suicide, you know. Yeah, and it and takes a while for them to to start worrying after all his questions. You know, he talks to Dave the cook and to Shelley, and finally they put it all together and start wondering what Ed's up to. Yeah, I like that it's Shelley who kind of is like you can see that she's like taking notice of it and. You know, she's just like, someone's got to look out for Ed and see what's going on. Ed tells Shelly when she goes to visit him and question him about all these things, he tells her that suicide's not the Indian way, that you don't go where you aren't invited. So I thought that was interesting. It's a pretty good way to think of it. Yeah. Yeah. And then Shelly's just kind of, okay, you know. Yeah. (laughs) She was fine with it after that. (laughs) I actually... Uh, I didn't bring it up when we were talking about this late, but in the shot of Shelly entering Ed's home, there is a... uh, like a bottle of pesticide yeah, right there. And I it remember almost, that. Yeah, it, it almost seems like Ed is like drinking it, like from the bottle right there. Yeah. Like the way it's framed right there. Uh, I always I think, thought that was a very interesting shot. Maybe that's like the, go ahead. I didn't notice that. Yeah. yeah. I, he was setting rat traps, but. Right. That's true. Maybe it was like a red herring and then like whenever, because when you walk in, Ed is like on the floor in the bathroom. So it's like, oh no, did he drink pesticides? But. At the same time, the show doesn't really build up any tension there. I don't think it would be the right tone anyway, but 
you just see Ed on the floor. He's like, oh, no, I'm just down here placing uh, rat traps. So he's like, oh, okay. I guess that makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> so, Miss Charlotte, what did you think about how Maurice reacted to Chris this episode? He just could not stand the fact that he was saved by, you know, if he would have died in a plane crash during the war or in a spaceship or whatever, that would have been fine with him. But for Chris to save him, as he said, uh, an itinerant ex-con DJ, my <laughs> yeah. employee, you know, it, it just drove him crazy because he, he thought his life was worth more than that than for someone more important, some, you know, yeah. more important way to be saved. I, yeah, I think that's a really interesting line. He says that he was saved by, um, like you were saying, this ex-con DJ. And uh, one, I thought I was really insulting to Chris. Like he was, so, he was like so much more than that for you to uh, reduce his value to that. But also, like, what would you have preferred to have been saved by? Which I think is a really odd thing. It's not like that would come up in regular conversation for you to be like, "Oh, did you, have you ever almost died?" It's like, "Yeah, once." And uh, the president saved me. It's like, what? <laughs> <laughs> who cares? <Yeah. laughs> yeah, I think I think he felt like he should be the one to save himself. That he right. was he had to be in charge. You know. Oh, uh, that's true. You're right. Yeah, we talked about our Charles made a really good point when we were discussing earlier. Charles, like it's that a lot of that plot line is about this feeling of control. And Chris says it. You know, he says. Uh, you know, you're 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 trying to recapture that illusion that you're in control. Um, so, well, another thing I found funny was when Joel and Maggie finally had their role in the hay. They must have had twelve layers of clothes on. Oh, <laughs> it, yeah, was, yeah. it was such a struggle. And Joel yeah. takes his coat off over his head and twirls it around and throws it, and <laughs> it's just the most unromantic thing. There, you know. It's yeah, just <laughs> that is funny. They have so many layers. And like that's, I can keep hearing that sound effect of like, not when you unzip a jacket, but when you like pull it open, it's like, yeah. <laughs> like almost tears. <laughs> Let's see, there was one, oh yeah, the, the coconuts, Maurice and his coconuts. He decided because he found a coconut that didn't break, that he would not have, he wouldn't have died had he fallen <laughs> off the roof. However, I wrote down that that was a total of 11 coconuts he tried. The first yeah. four exploded, the next five <laughs> cracked, and then three made it. Yeah. Of course, it was cracked enough to where, you know, you could pour the milk out of the inside. But, I mean, he tried until he found one that proved he wasn't going to die if <laughs> yeah. he fell off the roof. Today, I don't think he could get by with the statement he made about being a paraplegic. He said he would oh. rather put a, a, a nine millimeter slug yeah. in his head than, than to be in a wheelchair. That would never fly today. Uh, I'm surprised not. they let it. I'm surprised they let it go then, even. But anyway, we didn't even touch on that when we were talking, Charles. But yeah, but yeah, I guess that's the they can get away because it's Maurice's bigotry. Um, yeah, right. Yeah. But yeah, that's pretty messed up. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. There's definitely the, statistically, it seems like he would he would have died if he fell off that. I guess his for his whole thing, it's just that there's a. Uh, there's some possibility of survival. He's like, yeah, I guess so. And he tried all the coconuts until he found, you know, he proved that he could have, you know, it wasn't the first coconut. That's for sure. That sounds like such a silly, like, obviously it's, it doesn't have, it doesn't fulfill any of the parameters of how like, um, 
actual science experiment would be. <laughs> like, it's just, like, it's just like an absolutely nonsense experiment for him to throw coconuts until one survived. He'd be like, see, I would have totally survived the fall. It's like, what? Like, no. I'm, I'm glad he at least like tried to update his experiment a little bit because he started with uh, melons and then he decided coconuts would be more realistic. But yeah, yeah I think so, you're right, Charles. He didn't, he should have kept going, I guess. Yeah. But yeah. Like you were saying with Charlotte, he only had like, what, what was it, like three coconuts that survived? Yeah. Essentially, three, three out of 11. So he's playing like Russian coconuts right here. It's just like a terrible odds <laughs> of surviving. <laughs> well, what about the ending where Maggie and Joe will come to terms with what happened? Yeah, it, we got it. Oh, go ahead. No, well, it, it's just that watching it, you know, they're saying that they've come to terms with it and that'll never happen again. And then the looks in their eyes you know, they want it to happen again. They're just, you know, on the surface, they're saying no, but internally, yeah. I think nothing's changed. It's giving me flashbacks to spring break when they like first kiss and uh, that whole episode there, like Maggie's like, you know, well, well I have Rick and uh, Joel, you just need to get yourself a woman, get yourself a woman and then we'll be good. We don't have to worry about it. <laughs> so you can tell they like are excited by it and they want that, but they've decided for themselves that I guess more rationally or the next day that they, uh, that they're going to just be okay and be, you know, better friends for it. But, uh, they say the sexual tension is gone and it'll never happen again. (laughs) Well, we'll see. We'll put that to the test, uh, because we've still got Charles, we've got like what, like 50 plus more episodes (laughs) left. So wait, what? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Which I was like, what? <laughs> Wait, how many seasons are there? <laughs> There's six, but remember... Oh, um, shoot. I thought it was five for some reason in my brain. <laughs> Charles I was like, is how mis- is there 50? <laughs> Charles is mysteriously absent from the last season. He just never showed up <laughs> of uh, the podcast. Okay, well, that was Miss Charlotte. We had to cut a little short there at the end because her husband just stepped into the room and we joked that we weren't going to include him on the podcast. Uh, you know, it's all confidential, anonymous, but... Uh, Thank you so much, Miss Charlotte, for being on the podcast and effectively maybe starting this podcast way back in 2007, 2008, and whenever you discovered those uh, that show and showed it to Jay and 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 you know I came along there. Jay showed it to me. Now Charles, we've got you know we've got through season six too. So don't forget about season six, Charles. <laughs> um, so the next episode for the podcast is going to be season four, episode 17. We're going to take a little break before we come back. But in the meantime, Charles, uh, I can ask you now at least, what do you think is going to happen in this next episode? It's called Love's Labor Mislaid. I don't want to go with the obvious answer of somebody falling in love with someone and then not reciprocating to love. I'm going to go with a little bit of an offbeat answer by saying that it's about someone whose passion that they thought that they once liked is now diminishing as they grow older or maybe something has come up and they no longer have the um, intensity that they had to, the, the intensity that they used to have for it. Right. Very good. Very good uh, guess. Now, let me prod a little further. You know, we just had this big Joel Maggie uh, plot line. Do you think they're going to address that in this episode or do you think uh, this is kind of a bad, you know, they're going to put that on the back burner? Oh, gosh. Uh they hardly ever go with continuity. Like, <laughs> yeah, no, it's true. I mean, other than Maggie's house, which is about the biggest continuity thing they've had. <laughs> uh, I would like, I would like for them to go forward with this. 
I doubt they will. I'll be pleasantly surprised if they bring up what just happened in this episode into the future episodes and actually try to go beyond the status quo. Well, let's see what develops in the next episode. Charles, we'll take a little time off. And uh, listener, if you'd like, we've got some new Patreon bonus content brewing on our Patreon. That's patreon.com slash Northern Overexposure Podcast. Uh, we just talked about the pilot again, but I think we're working on some uh, recipes from the Northern Exposure cooking book. So uh, look out for that. And Charles, I will see you next time. All right. I'll see you next time, Lee. Northern Overexposure Podcast is edited by Lee. Our theme music was remixed by Matt Jackson. Thanks to Laser Kitties for the podcast artwork. And thanks to Miss Charlotte for being our guest analyst. If you'd like to write in, you can reach us at northernoverexposurepodcast at gmail.com, at northernoverpod on Twitter. And if you like the show, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash northernoverexposurepodcast. And of course, thank you for listening.